to the open side. Karim Bete. Lovely here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Hi there, welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby. We are the people's podcast, providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. Now, I'm your host, Mitch. Join with me is our, um, I guess, third co-host now, Lockie. Lockie, mate, how are you? Very well, very well. And we're missing someone again. Ando's off gallivanting around in the States, which must be nice. He sent us a couple of pics in his Wallaroos kit. Yeah, I saw photos come through in our group chat of him around the Washington Monument and the Lincoln statue in his Wallaroos kit. So um, the Wallaroos are probably closer to him at the moment as we currently talk than we are to them. So they're up in Canada. So maybe uh, Ando can somehow get to Canada from where he is in Washington and and get amongst it, but who knows? Uh, anyway, Lucky, you've been up to some other podcast work this last day or so what what have you been up to lately yeah it's been fun i've been flying the pick and drive flag and taking it offshore we did a a recording with a couple of terrific uh, kiwi and south african content creators and podcasters um fella called max who runs an account called the black jersey across the ditch and um one half of the rugby pundit i believe over in south africa with nick I'm doing some recordings earlier this afternoon, doing the TRC preview. So it was lots of fun. It was good to get a South African's perspective as well on things. Um, The Kiwis, as usual, talking themselves up, worried about picking new teams and why can't Geordie Barrett play in these positions and why can't he? So it was good fun to get a different offshore perspective and um, pitch a bit of good news of Aussie rugby. Now, as the only resident Aussie on the podcast, I hope you convince him that we're going to get a clean sweep, right? Funnily enough, the Kiwi actually picked Australia to win the TRC um, and win back the Bledisloe. So a typical shady business, I thought, from a Kiwi, just trying to talk us up when Eddie's around. But they're both very impressed with the return of Eddie Jones. And um, there's a lot more positivity about the Aussies, but also a lot more expectation from their take. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, we've got a lot to talk about. So let's uh, let's run through what we're going to do tonight and then we might get into the content. So first up, we have the Wallaroos had their... Uh, first test in the Pack 4 competition uh, on Thursday night. So we'll run through that. You, Lockie, were able to attend that in person. So I'm really, really keen to get your thoughts on the game, the atmosphere, and all of that kind of stuff. We'll then go through the Junior Wallabies and their uh, second game of the tournament against Ireland uh, before we dive into the Wallabies. And first up, we've named our predicted 15s, each of us for that first test against South Africa next Sunday morning, Australia time. So we'll go through that. We'll then also talk, talk in a little bit more detail around the wider training squad slash Australia A, what that means, who might get actual game time with that, what games they're going to be playing. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of basically it for that. So that's kind of all I've got for the intro. Why don't we just uh, get into the rugby content? Let's go. Let's go. Let's talk some rugby now. So we're starting off with the Wallaroos, and unfortunately, this definitely isn't the result we wanted. Probably not the result the Wallaroos deserved either. 50 nil. Uh, Wallaroos last game on Australian soil for 2023. Lockie, you were lucky enough to be able to go to Redcliffe and, and support the girls in person. 
before we get into the actual game, what were your thoughts around the crowd, the stadium, the opportunity to see the Wallaroos in person for the first time since the World Cup last year? Oh, look, the atmosphere exceeded all my expectations. It was really, really good energy. Plenty of Kiwis packing it out, as you can imagine. Um, but an attendance of over 7,000 on a Thursday night up at Redcliffe is no mean feat. I think it's really impressive, the presence that we had out there. There was really good on-field engagement, lots of get into rugby, touch sevens running around. So it was plenty of Wallaroos branding. And overall, the experience of the night was excellent. I had a really good time. The anthem in Yogan Bay was yeah. brilliant as well. Indigenous kit, you know, aside from the on-field result, everything <laughs> ran really, really well. So I was super, super proud and really pleased to be able to be a part of that. A, a world record crowd, I think, um, for not world record, but Australia for a standalone Wallaroos game. And yep. it was the fifth highest crowd ever, I believe. So really exciting sort of off-field. But, yeah, I mean, you look at the scoreline and you think a bit one-sided, unfortunately, for our girls. It was interesting watching the coverage, and you obviously had the game, so you probably didn't see this part. But as the – I think they did like an aerial shot after the anthems as the players were kind of, I think, getting ready for the hucker. Um, and they had they must have just opened up the far stands at that point because there was all of these people streaming across from one side sort of filling up the far stands – uh, so that kind of shows that even the ground and the sort of the facility probably wasn't expecting this amount of people either. And 15 minutes into that first half, that second far side was pretty full as well. So definitely a great crowd. Unfortunately, wasn't the result that we wanted. Uh, what do, what were your thoughts around, I guess, well, geez, where do we start? Like, uh, 50 nil, there's not really much to like. Uh yeah, what, were you, what are your thoughts? I think looking at it after the fact as well, so I went back and watched the game again after being there, but it stood out so much to me, the intensity with which the Black Ferns went into contact. And it wasn't to say that the Wallaroos weren't going in hard. They were running good lines. Um, if anything, we were probably a touch lateral for our Wallaroos girls, but the Black Ferns were running from such depth and that to me stood out as a difference. They were really coming off the back fence and um, hitting shoulders, hitting inside arms, and the sound, the sound of impact stood out to me. So the back row that they put together, obviously co-captain, World Cup winning co-captain Kennedy Simon was a huge presence in the back row for the Black Ferns and um, with Michaeli too and um, Bremner as well. That's a really big physical back row. And I think that's probably where they started really ripping in and at ruck time, um, you'd have to say that Blackburn's probably had a bit of ascendancy, which would really sting the Wallaroos because we've got such a history of having really proud back row players and really strong back row talents. With You, know, you had Gracie Hamilton on the field. Ash Masters has been a standout all Super W season and she still played out of her skin, but the Blackburn's won the ruck. That was clear as day from being at the field and then re-watching it. And I think that probably stood out the most and gave players like Ruhi DeMont and Sylvia Brunt, who was just a star at 12, running in for two tries, they really anchored that game. But, I mean, the Black Ferns were thinking, oh, maybe this is the game. You know, there's no Portia Woodman, no Stacey Waka, no Ruby Tui, and all of a sudden you've got Merrangi Paul scoring two tries on debut. You've got Catelyn Varkolo on the other wing ripping and tearing, and Renee Holmes is an elite fullback. 
So it's a very strong side. And I think it's not quite a re- – well, it is a reality check in a sense for our Wallaroos because now we go over to Ottawa. They're already there now with everything to play for. We're playing away yeah. from home, like you said, for the rest of the season to earn that spot in um, WXV1. And they've, re- they've got to pick up a game. They've got to pick up a game or it's a step in the wrong direction for the Wallaroos. So with that pack four, uh, sorry, the World 15 that's coming up next year, that's well, it's this is year. This, is, or is it, it's later this year, isn't it? The, it? Is the top two from year. pack four that make it through? Uh, top three. So the top three make top it three. through. So yeah. realistically, you would expect Canada to pick up a game as well. They beat the States twice in the World Cup last year. Um, so it's coming down and what shapes to come down to is a big game between the Wallaroos and the States. It would be amazing if our Wallaroos girls get up against Canada. I'm backing them every step, but so much hinges on that States game and how we can fare there. So we pick up two games over there. We're laughing. We're heading back down to New Zealand for the O'Reilly Cup second leg. You know, it's a long shot, but who knows if we've got the wins and two momentums under our belt. So everything to play for. And if we pick up a win and we finish, you know, in that top three of the pack four, we're straight into World um, XV1 and a, a huge opportunity to play against England, against Wales, against these Northern Hemisphere powerhouses back in Kiwiland at the end of the year. Now, going back to the game, one of the elements that you spoke about was the physicality and the breakdown uh, was definitely an area that we weren't dominating and that the Black Ferns were able to definitely get some early ascendancy there. I wonder if that comes down to selection in the forward pack. Now, particularly in our back three, so we had Ash Masters named at seven. We also had Caitlin uh, Leaney at six. Now, both of those players have not played that position in Super W this year with Grace Hamilton at number eight. Do you think that might have been a, a, a reason why we weren't getting as much dominance at that breakdown because those players were playing, in some ways, out of position? It's a funny thing. I mean, you look at those selections and you think, I haven't seen them there before. But also, I mean, Caitlin Leaning was one of the form players for Harlequins in Premier 15s uh, as a second rower, admittedly. But Ash Masters on the side of the scrum, flipping between that and two for the Rebels. I mean, they're both elite players. So I think you're right. It comes down to that cohesion and that'll build. You can see why they're picking Caitlin Laney on the side because it does give you that extra line-out edge. Well, it does on paper. And then you've got three really tall timber options to go to. But so much of the Wallaroos' back three consistency, that back row, sorry, is around you know, having Piper back as well. You I mean, that's your captain. That's your, your go forward for the Tars. She's been leading all year and she's your Wallaroos captain. So I think bringing Piper back into the fold adds so much as well. And then you've got to give it time as well. M Chancellor's coming back in. We've got a dearth of options across sort of six, seven, eight. And second row is becoming really tightly contested. You've got Nagama, Cody, Mac Leonard, Laney, they're all in the mix, plus Lelani Nathan. So huge amounts of talent. Just how we put them together and how they click, that'll determine you know, our pack four and the rest of our year. It was focusing a little bit more on the Black Ferns and the way they played this game. I, I found myself watching or thinking as I watched the game that particularly that first maybe 15 minutes, the, the Black Ferns almost seemed out of character or off their game plan a little bit. There was a lot of drop ball, uh, players out of position, not able to make uh, or finish off line breaks or execute the plays that they that we've come to expect from the Black Ferns in the past. So I was kind of hoping, half, half hoping, that this, the Wallaroos would put in a performance like we saw 
at Eden Park in the Open during the World Cup last year, where they put the Black Ferns under a lot of pressure, forced them into making those mistakes. Uh, do you think the Wallaroos now look back on particularly that opening maybe 20 minutes and kind of rue the missed opportunities that they had, that they weren't able to apply more pressure to the Black Ferns and force them into making more mistakes and capitalising on that themselves? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's everything about getting that momentum. It means everything in um, our Wallaroos game, especially against the Black Ferns. And that was a great example with the World Cup opener. We're up 17-0 and everyone's going, what? You could hear a pin drop across Eden Park. I know because I was one of about five Wallaroos supporters in the stands and we were just going absolutely ballistic. So striking early is so important. And I think because the Black Ferns were able to withstand the huge amount of early pressure that we had because we did, we had the ball and we were starting to move it around and get some downfield progress, but failure to capitalise and then bang, all of a sudden, they've gone over twice on the right side. Um, Renee Holmes is slotting conversions for fun from out wide and you're up to 14-0. So, I mean, it's a really tough turnaround and I think it comes down to game time. The more that our Wallaroos get to play, the more opportunities we give these women and these high-level athletes to be treated as such and to take these steps, the better they're going to be. And it's super exciting sort of looking forward to um, World Cup 2025 over in the UK and think, you know, how far can these girls go once we've got these routine pack fours, once we're consistently pushing the Black Ferns in O'Reilly Cup games, you know, we should have high expectations and I'm sure they do of themselves. If we look forward for the Wallaroos now, what changes do you think Jay Tregoning will make to this team uh, for that? I think the first test is against Canada. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. I'm not sure if the dates are coming up on our slide in just a tick, but yeah, Canada and uh, the US are going to be really tough games. And I think, and it's funny that there's a player on screen, I think Arabella McKenzie really comes into focus as an option around the pivot or fullback and also Laurie Kramer. Um, people are probably sick of me talking about them through scrum bags and always giving them a plug on here, but they really have excelled in the UK. And I was really, I was really sad and disappointed for Laura that she didn't get a chance in the Prim 15s final. She missed out on the 23 um, for Exeter's loss against Gloucester. And I think she would have made a huge difference across um, the back three mm. with her kicking game and running game. She's a really good distributor. So those two immediately spring to mind as key additions in the back line because it didn't quite click, not in general play where we were touch lateral. We still had our moments, but I found that we were playing a lot of game in our 22 and failing to exit effectively. So I think if Jay's looking at that game, he's looking, how can we exit and get back out of this red zone? Arabelle McKenzie's boot and Laurie Kramer's experience come into play massively. What do you reckon? Yeah, I... Um... I hate to come onto this platform and sort of bag players and say they didn't perform well, but I was not impressed with Carice Dallinger this week. Uh, I thought when Bella McKenzie got on the field late in that second half, and yeah, late in the second half, I thought that the back line looked a lot stronger, looked a lot more fluid. The ball was moving, finding the outer backs in space a lot more um, than we had seen before that. It was a tricky, uh, I guess, decision for the coaching staff in this game, and I, I thought kind of was thinking towards even the end of the first half, like, geez, the Black Ferns are running away with this. They're putting in a lot of point. They're scoring a lot of tries and they're um, dominating us in most areas of the game. We need to change something up. And so I wanted to see the likes of Emily Chancellor um, come on and, and put that impact in for the Wallaroos to sort of change and get the momentum back their way. But you can also understand why 
the coaching staff didn't do that and they were a little bit hesitant. You don't want to bring them on when they haven't been in the um, the team and I mean, what, two weeks, a week and a half and they've been back in Australia. So the fact that they did get as many minutes as they did, they definitely had impact, those those players when they came on, the European-based ones. Yeah, for sure. I think you see so much of that impact in the way that uh, McKenzie straightened up the attacking shape um, when she first got involved. And I think what we're going to see is probably her being introduced a little more, whether it's at 10 or potentially at 12. I know she played plenty of 12 while she was over there uh, in the Prem 15s and across fullback too. So they're all options um, for Jay moving forward. But it's pretty exciting to see um, how we can fare over there. It would be a really, really strong move for Aussie rugby if we can pick up two wins in North America. And um, I know I'll be catching those games live and really excited to see how our girls go. Now, we've spoken a lot around the actual game, the Wallaroos performances, some of the players themselves, what's going to happen next. I guess one of the final points I wanted to sort of touch on was the idea, and we've spoken about it before, but I think it's pertinent that we bring it up again, of a fully professional team coming up against semi-professionals. Now, the Blackburns haven't played a test since the World Cup final last year. They came into this game and they looked good. They had a lot of players out. They had a lot of players making their debuts, but you can tell that their systems and their development processes are in place. These players have time together. They've got cohesion. They've got um, combinations in player positions and whatnot. And the Wallaroos, unfortunately, we don't have that at the moment. I think this is going to be a massive wake-up call for our aid. You don't want to be conceding 50 points and not scoring a single point at home. Um, And considering we've only got two tests at home this year, we needed to make an impact. What are your thoughts around some of those points? Um, as much as I know you are a Rugby Australia employee, so you, you have to kind of tailor it to, to keep the bosses happy a little bit. No, it's, it's not so much around that. I think what it does do is it highlights the value of our sevens players in the World Cup and the impact and the experience that they brought and also the fitness and the physicality that they brought too. We saw Shani really lock down that 12 role through the pool stages and Bian coming in on the wing and being hyper-effective, scoring tries for fun. And also Shannon with all her experience, and I know we've lost her now, at least to the playing group. She's still coaching with our youth sevens team. But those three players were integral to our World Cup campaign and they've got all the backing and all the fitness of a full program too. So I think that just shows how strong the Wallaroos can be as a unit with all that backing as well. So that's what really stood out to me from that game. But, you know, it's onwards and up for our Wallaroos. I'm really excited for them. And what we can take away from that game is people care. People care. We managed to pack out Dolphin Stadium just about. And going forward, I'm really hoping for massive things, especially out of Ballymore with new digs there for the women. I've had the chance to go down and take a tour and it looks fantastic. So we're doing all the right things to set ourselves up for a really successful decade of women's rugby as well. Well, for those that are playing at home and aren't uh, watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast, we do currently have on the screen the upcoming games for the Wallaroos. So they've got two more games now in Canada where they currently are. Ottawa, I think, is where they're based at the moment. Uh, so Canada's next. Black Ferns for that final leg of the O'Reilly Cup on the 30th of September somewhere in New Zealand. So... That's what's coming up next for our Wallaroos girls. All right, I think that finishes off for the Wallaroos. Why don't we dive into our under-20s and their uh, World 
championship campaign. You take over the reins here, Lockie. For sure, mate. We'll jump straight in. And look, this was a really, for those who managed to catch it, I know there was some chat on the Pick and Drive Discord as well. This was a rainy, muddy, old-fashioned slog over in Pile in South Africa. The Irish are strong favourites heading to this as well. After being under-26 nation champions, they've rolled along and with a big second half kicked out to a 30 points to 10 victory over the Junior Wallabies. Uh, heading into halftime, the Irish held an 11-10 lead. Not much in it, but huge forward play in the second half. Big set piece, lots of old-fashioned 10-man footy. They were grinding their way up to the front for that bonus point win. Uh, Mitch, just casting your eye over this game, 20 points is a pretty big margin on paper. Did you feel as though that was the case during the game, though? It's a little bit hard to say, Uh Wet conditions didn't make this an easy game for either team. If we're going to say that one team played the conditions better than the other, it's definitely Ireland. I think the way that they kept the ball in hand, a lot of pick and drives, kept it in tight, whereas the Wallabies tended, or the Junior Wallabies tended to try a bit more flashy style of rugby, throw it around a little bit more and um, chance their hand that way. The Irish team scored a try like a minute or two from full time, so I think that blew the score out a little bit. Up into that point, what was it, 23 to 10, which is a little bit more respectable, I guess. Um, so, yeah, but um, towards the end of the game, Ireland definitely were the dominant team and were sort of ahead by a fair way. And the Wallaroos, the Wallabies didn't look like catching up at, at that point. Yeah, I don't think anyone will begrudge Ireland the win. They were impressive, but a couple of points stood out and this was raised in the pick and draft community as well. Uh, some dubious calls, not wrong calls, but certainly 50-50s that ended up going Ireland's way. Uh, one that stands out for starters is 62nd minute, so at a crucial time, uh, big Irish boy goes over, uh, New South Wales halfback, Captain Teddy Wilson, underneath it, from what we could see on camera, is almost entirely there and looked held up to me. Mitch, what did you make of this one? Yeah, that one was held up, right? That was Teddy Wilson's under the ball. Uh, there was there was a fair few dubious calls throughout this game in terms of the way that they they reviewed certain things. Um, the try in the second or third minute of the game as well, where they didn't really analyze it too much. They just said it was clearly out and kind of you freeze things that probably touch and go could have been awarded if they had looked at it. So... A fair few decisions that were frustrating for the Wallabies that didn't go our way. But at the same time, look, this Irish team pushed on ahead and, and didn't make excuses and the Wallabies weren't able to do that. And so at the end of the day, if you're relying on referee calls to win you a game of rugby, you're probably not doing well enough to win the game. Yeah, that's probably a fair point. And yeah, Tim Ryan, it was in the early minute, um, had another opportunity uh, in the 47th to go over with the open line begging and drop that, put it down. But he also had a fantastic rundown um, and stopped an intercept try from happening. So a mixed bag from the man 14. Uh, Darby Lancaster had some good touches before he um, copped a really high knock towards the end of the game. I thought uh, there were really good moments from the centre pairing of Dave Vaihu and Henry O'Donnell. 
and definitely some good sparks out of Wilson and Bowen. That New South Wales combination is pretty exciting looking forward, I think, for Waratahs fans, seeing two familiar surnames carving it up in the under-20s. But, yeah, you've got to say that the Irish played to the conditions perfectly and their number eight, um, I didn't catch his first name, but I think his surname's Gleeson. He is a monster, massive one to watch going forward for the Irish. But lots to look forward to. There's another game and everything depends on it against the old enemy. Uh, it's the English, our next date, and it will decide whether we get a semi-final berth or not. The Irish obviously having a draw with England in the first pool game. It looks like fairly simple arithmetic from here. If we bank a win over England and it goes to script with Fiji and Ireland, we will almost, or well, not certainly, but we've got a, certainly a good chance at getting that semi-final berth. So shout out to the Junior Wallabies. They head over the team list um, for those who are on the YouTube is currently up and we'll share that through our story socials as well. Pretty exciting to see um, Taj Annan back in the mix at 12 as well. I thought he had a really um, good game uh, against Fiji and some good moments through the Super Rugby season for the Reds. So that's a big back row. And um, is a big Laufey coming back into number eight was a huge standout against Fiji. So lots to look forward to. I encourage everyone to tune in uh, to stand and catch that England Wallabies game as well um, this weekend down at Cape Town. So lots to look forward to. But Mitch, it's that time of year. It's TRC time. <laughs> well, actually, I've got one more point before we finish off on the Junior Wallabies and dive into the Rugby Championship, and that is this point that's up on the screen now. So if you are following along on YouTube, ah, you can see that yes, our friends these from things the north. tend to pop up whenever whenever the North get a series or a few wins uh, on board, and I think we can they can thank the Italians for the upset um, 34-26 over the Springboks, which I don't think anyone was really expecting or seeing coming. Uh, but... What what this is basically showing for those that are on the podcast is there was a divide this week. It was a whitewash. All the Northern Hemisphere teams won and all of the somewhat Southern Hemisphere teams, we'll throw Japan in there and Argentina to a degree, um, all, all lost. So whenever these things happen, the North like to pump it up, pump up their tires a little bit. We saw that last year on the spring tour. I think it was round two. When, or maybe even round three, when I think Italy got over the top of the Wallabies, there was some talk going on about how all the Six Nations teams had beaten all the rugby champs teams and yada, yada, yada. But the point I wanted to make was that these results are, are clearly showing the, that having development systems work. Now, rugby championship, uh, we don't have an equivalent junior setup for our junior Wallabies. They play under 18s, uh, they play Colts in Sydney or well anywhere in the state, really they could play, but they play Colts or if they're good enough, they make super rugby. Whereas in the North, they have a junior six nations. They have an under 21 six nations competition that includes Ireland, France, Wales, Italy, and England. We're going to see results like this if we don't do something about it. What are your sort of thoughts on this sort of development pathway? How long will it be until uh, the rugby championship or... Sansa or whoever it is that runs the rugby down here in the South, get their fingers out and start to realize that we need to have some kind of pathway for our players. Oh, Mitch, I would love to see an under twenties TRC or under twenties, you know, pack four, merge them together, get six teams, include Japan. Let's do something with all the talent here because it's paying dividends in the North. Clearly it's paying dividends 
if France rolled New Zealand 30 to 12 in a test match again, it'd be all over the news. It's massive to see, and especially with Italy as well. And I don't know if you saw the reels that were being cut of the Italian captain giving a huge rev up speech before the kickoff. I mean, that kind of stuff. Oh, he had me motivated. I've, I'm not Italian so at all, but I was ready to start, you know, eating pasta or pizza or whatever I needed to do. Speaking Italian, I was ready to run through a wall for that bloke. Very motivational uh, leader, that guy. Oh, yeah. brick walls, brick walls around the country faltering. Um, yeah, it, he was amazing. And it just, it points at this pathway level, it points to success. The French coming off that 2019 uh, Junior uh, World Championships when they beat the Wallabies by a point, so much of that 2019 team is now included in their World Cup squad and their favourites at home. There is a there is a pathway that I believe the Southern Hemisphere country should be following. And it would also get that early buy-in. You see so much from other codes about, what's happening at under 18s level, you know, who's the next up and coming. And we have, you know, great pathways, I think, through hospital cut through shield, you know, well-established nurseries, but this is a different market and you get huge buy-in, I think, from having an under 20s competition that's regular, that's not just the back and forward between Australia and New Zealand, but that sees us really test ourselves against the box, against the Japanese, against the Argentinians, and give us a platform to then launch into these events with plenty of game time under our belts. Can you imagine, picture a world where Brisbane, 2026, 2027, whenever it is, uh, 2 p.m., the Junior Wallabies kick off against the Junior All Blacks. 5 p.m. or 5.30, the Wallaroos kick off against the Black Ferns. And then 8, 30, 8 o'clock, 8.30, the Wallabies play the All Blacks. Three different levels. Oh, that- all in their oh, own competitions. I'd be there all day. How good would that be? Why Why do we not have something? Even if you have a, a tournament that runs in reverse. So when the Wallabies are in South Africa playing the Springboks, in Australia, the Baby Box are playing the Junior Wallabies. Follow the same setup be- as the Rugby Championship. It, we have the systems in place. We just need to be doing it. It just, it doesn't, I don't understand why we're not. And well, I think what it comes down to is a clear correlation between playing more games at a high level and on-field results and sustained success. We're seeing it with these long seasons over domestically with the top 14, with Europe and these Australian players in particular are part of these teams that are building cohesion and going really well and they're getting this match fitness. If we do that at under-20s level and we're able to see a junior Wallabies contingent play for you know, anywhere up to between six and eight games a year, at least in tournament style, and then build into a world championships. There's no reason we can't be world beaters. Look at the talent in these teams, the, the Lancasters, the Annans, um, the Wilsons, the Slack Smiths, the Marley Pierces. They're really talented footballers. The Vihus, exactly. So we've got so much talent and they just need to be together more because what Nathan Gray has done already this year is super impressive. We've got a win over in New Zealand over the junior All Blacks, already a huge start. What else can we do with it? Can we build these rivalries up so an under-20s event is one that you pay to go and see? Is a ticketed event at a Ballymore, at a at a North Sydney Oval, um, down somewhere across at Perth? You know, there are opportunities of plenty, and I would love to see it become a marquee event of its own. Exactly. it's uh, it, it scratches your head why these systems have never been thought about or developed in the past. But moving forward, as we, we talk about Rugby Australia has the, the golden decade coming up, this is the money, this is the systems that 
this is where the money needs to go, the pathways, the development of our players to make them ready. So when they pull on that Wallabies jersey, it's not the first, second, third time they've played with the guy they're playing outside of. It's the 12th, 15th, 16th, 20th, 50th test, a 50th game in an ideal situation, even if it's only their third or fourth cap. So that's kind of the system where we need to get to. But as you kind of said before, what everyone is here for, the rugby championship, the Wallabies, the prime uh, piece that is Australian rugby in Australia or in the Southern Hemisphere. So this time next week, we'll be talking about the results, the the emphatic victory over the Springboks for the Wallabies. Um, if you are following along on YouTube, we have the, the dates and the time, kickoff times up for the rugby champs. So next weekend, we kick off our, our tournament against South Africa in Pretoria. The Wallabies have never won there. 1.05 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time is kickoff there, 9th of July. The following week, we then come back to Sydney. We play the spring, uh, the Los Pumos, Argentina, uh, 7.45 p.m. on Saturday, the 15th of July. We then go down to Melbourne for the first test of the Bledisloe Cup 2023, 29th of July, 7.45 p.m. kickoff that one. And then a few weeks later, or actually I think that's even just a week later, we go over to Dunedin to play the All Blacks for the deciding test of the Bledisloe, hopefully. Now, what? which out of these four games that are coming up for the Wallabies, which one are you most excited for? Well, I'm excited for the one in Dunedin and completing a clean sweep and a Bledisloe win. I think that's the one to look forward to. Down at Forsyth Bar under the roof where it's nice and noisy and the zoo at the end with all the Highlander supporters going off of and them. going nuts as we win it. Yeah, all four of them. Um, I can't wait for all of them, honestly, but Pretoria is where it all begins and what we're going to look at in a tick. And it's such a good challenge first up for our Wallabies. Um, chatting with the fellow from the South African podcast, Rugby Pundit, just before, he was telling me that the South Africans have been together as a unit, as a Springbok squad, training on the high veld in Pretoria for six weeks to prepare for this. So whatever the media you've seen around them, sending a weaker team um, to that game and keeping all the strong ones for the All Blacks, rubbish. They want this game badly and Eddie does too. So it's going to be a massive, massive contest. Do you have your eye on any of these games as a standout? Well, I've got tickets for the uh, the Los Pumos test I think that's going to be really exciting for a number of reasons. First of all, the the only test in Sydney this year for the Wallabies. Combank Stadium's a great stadium. It's a bit smaller, so we have the option, the ability as a as a rugby public to fill it up to get a really strong atmosphere for the Wallabies and cheer them on and let them know that we're behind them all the way leading into France later in the year. But I'm really excited to see Eddie Jones versus Michael Checker. These two guys, best mates, played rugby together, grew up together. Um, they just go, they take things to another level when they coach or play against one another. So there's going to be mind games that week. There's going to be so much stuff in the media. I just, I can't wait. It's going to be so exciting. So, so good. And the coaching quality that we've got on display at the Rugby Championship at the moment, especially when you look at next year, the addition of um, Razor Robertson, but you've got huge personalities in Rasi and Eddie and Czech. I mean, there's going to be so much fur flying across this rugby championship and it's a huge one everyone's saying you know shortened campaign eyes on the world cup but it means so much to get the win and get that momentum heading into the trc season i personally cannot wait to see if we can fill out the mcg if we can get big numbers we're talking six figures upwards of even ninety thousand would be such a huge result 
for that one-off test down there. So I can't wait to see what we can get done and down there. And if we do do that, I hope there's no French referees anywhere near the Southern Hemisphere at that time. <laughs> but uh, anyway, let's uh, let's dive into our prep for the Springboks next weekend. So we've both done our predicted 15s or 23s really uh, for next weekend. We've had a go naming the team that we would like to see uh, named for Australia. Lockie, why don't you run through your team first and then I'll run through my team. So who, who because for the fans listening on the podcast, go through um, each player. Easy. So just as a qualifier, the, I, when you said predicted 15, I'm picking the one that I think Eddie's going to pick. So this is not okay. my pick. This is a predicted Eddie-style 15 based on something. It's very light on Queensland Reds numbers. I did yeah, notice that. Otherwise, it would have been 23 straight Maroon. So let's go through this now. Um, I've got starting loose head James Slipper um, as co-captain in two David Parecki with Alan Alatoa in tight head. Uh, in the row, I've got a new combination of Richie Arnold and Will Skelton. In the back row, I've got Tom Hooper at six, Fraser McWright at seven, and Rob Valentini at eight. So that's my pack, a big, nasty pack that Eddie would like, I think. Um, in the halves, I've got Nick White and Quade Cooper, two seasoned campaigners with a centre pairing of Samu Karevi and Len Ikitao. On the wings, I'm thinking that Eddie's going to go with Marika Korobetti and Mark Nwanganita-Wase with the big-birded Reese Hodge uh, bringing up the rear as a starting fullback. And on my bench, I've named Matt Fazler to debut. I think Eddie's going to like the look of him with Gibbon and Tupo. Uh, then I've also got Frost, Holloway, and Michael Hooper on an extended forwards bench for a 6-2 split with Tate McDermott and Tom Wright filling out the bench. Mitch, what have you got for me, mate? Wow, there's uh, some big names included in this. Yeah, it's... Hey. Um, all right, I'll, I'll go through mine and then we might um, ask each other some questions and pick each other's brains on our selection. So I've started with... Number one, Slipper, um, Captain. Number two, Dave Parecki. Number three, Alan Alatoa. So that's a pretty standard front row, similar to what you've picked there. Uh, Number four, I've gone with Nick Frost. Number five, Will Skelton. Number six, Jed Holloway. Number seven, Fraser McWright. And number eight, Robbie Valentini. Uh, Into the backs, I've gone with, at scrum half, Nick White. Number 10, Quade Cooper. Number 11, Marika Korobetti. 12, Karevi, should he be fit? And we, we are hoping that he is. Uh, at 13, Ikitao. Now, the interesting one that I've thrown a little bit of a spanner in there, number 14, I've gone with Dylan Peach. You have gone with Mark Nwangani Tawasi. And at 15, I've gone with Tom Wright. Now, on the bench, I've got at 16, uh, Ulessi. 17, Angus Bell. If he is fit, we're not 100% sure at the moment, but we've included, I've included him hoping that he is fit. He did travel with the team. Uh, 18, Taniel Tupo. 19, Arnold. 20, Michael Hooper. 21, for, for Ando, uh, Ryan Lonigan. 2022, Carter Gordon for his first debut. And 23, Reese Hodge. Wow, very different looking sides. This is a, I love this kind of thing of being able to unpack. And I want to look straight at your Ford pack to begin with. We've got the same tight, uh, we've got the same front row, sorry. And the variations come in at four and six. You've gone with Frost and Holloway. Um, I I really was impressed with Nick Frost's season and with Jed Holloway, but trying to jump into Eddie's shoes, I'm thinking of the 
biggest and scariest and meanest looking people. And Richie Arnold and Tom Hooper, from what I saw through the super season, they both seem to fit that mould. Do you think that Frost and Holloway are going to have that same go forward against the box? I've gone with Frost purely, uh, maybe not from his physicality, but the stuff that he brings outside of that, his athleticism, if you will. So the fact that he can run, what was it, 55, 60 metres on an intercept to score. Uh, he brings things to the second row that no other lock in this 23, in our, even our house squad, does. Um, Eddie talks a lot about game breakers, about uh, picking players that have ability that you don't coach, that just know what they need to do. And I think for that reason, Frost uh, gets the nod for me. I'm also just a little hesitant to throw in both Richie Arnold and Will Skelton together, considering they've played next to no minutes. They've played no minutes together. Um, They've not played at this level together. They've only been in the squad for a handful of minutes, a week or so. So, um, yeah, it comes down to, for me, that that's probably more the sticking point, that if if their connection doesn't go well, um, I'd rather pull one of them off the bench. That's a pretty fair assessment. And I like that we've got a fairly similar sort of pairing with our halves and our centres from what we can see. I think that Peach is a massive bolter, a massive bolter from you. Why have you gone with the flyer? I've gone with him purely for his diverse, uh, his uh, utility. Uh, now, Eddie named him in that utility slot for his squad. And so I wouldn't be surprised that should Fraser McWright or Jed Holloway go down, Peach can slot into that forward pack if needed. Um, he has the ability. He has. He can play back. He can potentially play center. He's good at ball. He's a good on-ball presence um, out wide from his sevens background. So uh, that's one reason. The other reason is that you went with Mark Nwongani to us, and I just wanted to change things up a little bit. So I didn't want our teams to look too similar. Um, I want to ask you about Tom yes. Hooper, number six. Now, he's had a great season, and he is a very physical player, but this is like this is his breakout year in Super Rugby. This is his uh, – he's got very uh, – he's not all that experienced. Do you think that coming up against a physical f- Springbok forward pack is going to be the first introduction to Test Rugby that you want? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're sending a young six-lock hybrid – into the high belt to play against the reigning world champs. That's the perfect test for a six, I think. We we so often talk about in Australian rugby, and you hear it across the ditch as well, you know, what's our six? Who's our six? You know, people talk about Fardy as the recent benchmark for a six and what they do. And um, you look across at New Zealand, it's probably Jerome Kano. And everyone's trying to fill, fill the ultimate hard man line out. Hits rucks is just a rough and tumble bit of a bastard, if you will. And from what we've seen from Tom Hooper, at least what I've seen, I think it's the kind of thing that would attract Eddie. He hits rucks, he carries hard, he's a really strong line-out option. And I think playing up in the high belt against South Africa, you start someone like that and see how they go because I've named a 6-2 split because Eddie keeps talking about it. He talked about a 7-1 split on another podcast recently. I mean, he's just... he's. <laughs> so invested in having this utility and trying new things so so why not throw in a young six and really blood them against 
arguably the best pack in the world. So I think you've got that option there. And then with the bench that I've predicted from Eddie, you've got Frost, you've got Holloway, and you've got Hooper all you know coming into their own frost and then Holloway and Hooper really experienced campaigners who can come on if things aren't going well and just go, Well done, well done, young fella, you've had half an hour against the box. Have a breather. So you've got a bit of versatility there and I see after, you know, not being able to play up on the high bat for a little while, you need a six two split almost in Eddie's mind to get our forwards going as hard as they possibly can and as soon as they're blowing pull them and send in a bigger and scarier and more experienced person straight afterwards. We've both gone with the same option of Michael Hooper off the bench. Do we think Eddie will actually do that? Do you think Fraser McWright will be the starter in the seven jersey? This one was with my Queensland heart. I've got to admit, I, I would love to see, I'd love to see with my little Reds hat on Fraser getting that opportunity. And it, it balances out the co-captaincy. We're talking about a, a leadership team, a leadership unit, by having Slipper as the co-captain starting and Hooper potentially coming on and closing out the games, I think there's a continuity across the squad that we could see. And even if that is inverse in later tests with Slipper coming off the bench and Hooper starting, and that's the that's the change over the pass of the baton, if you will, I I believe something like that could happen down the line. But are we going to be that surprised to see our most mm-hmm. experienced Wallaby captain starting at seven? Probably not. Yeah, uh, I, I've i purely gone with McRite because he had a better super season than Hooper this year. And I think Eddie has spoken so much about picking winners and getting players to put in that sort of body of work, so to speak, to, to select themselves. And if you're putting Hooper and McWright up against each other, the moment McWright is that little bit ahead. Um, who else did I want to pick your brain on? Matty Fazler, do you reckon he's the... He's got what it takes to come on and, and steer the ship in the, in a tight test match with a few minutes to go. It's a, it's a big call, but so is Yalesi as well. You, we see a big divide in the hooker one. And to me, this is the most interesting part of the selections that we've um, put up on screen. Yalesi against Fazler. I think we touched on it in the last episode, looking at Yalesi as potentially fortunate to get in due to the amount of minutes he actually played in Super Rugby. And then you've got Fazler, who would be debuting, similar to you know Hooper, Tom Hooper, in the toughest possible place for a forward in Test footy. So it's a huge challenge. I think Fazler, his uh, I think I guess you'd call it a rugby resume this year, is looking seriously strong after a great year, particularly at the back of the mall and the line out with the Reds. His set piece was pretty strong. His work rate right around the park impressed me. Uh, but what really stands out to me is we've got some good talent and people like Falau Fangar and Lockie Lonigan aren't in this mix. They're in the Aussie A mix and further down the track. So this is a mm. really big test for all three hookers. You know, if you don't perform, we've got ready-made test hookers on the side ready to go. Do you think that Ulysses up for it after his season? That's half the reason I went with Ulysses off the bench, that – should he come on and not perform, then we at least we know we get it over and done with straight away. And we know that he's not up to to scratch. Whereas I would hate for that to happen. So I would hate for it to come down to his line out throw potentially being the determining factor of a win in this test, particularly yeah, particularly this week. But I'd much prefer him come on against the the Pumas. Uh, sorry, I would hate for him to come on against the Pumas next week 
and loses that test from having a poor outfit or having a poor, poor game. Uh, and then potentially we're looking at two games that we've lost theoretically. So I would rather just see if he's up for it this week. I also think that he's a bigger body. Um, and he, Eddie Jones talks about his broad shoulders and how he likes the physicality that he brings. I know it's something that we haven't really seen a lot of. It's been promised and spoken a lot, a lot about what Ulysses can bring, but we haven't really seen that in Super Rugby. Maybe Eddie's able to unlock that mongrel a little bit, and um, I'd love to see him just rip into this South Africa pack and start throwing his body around a little bit. Yeah, I agree. It would be amazing to see you know any of these players be able to rip and tear, and Ulysses always one that's excited me purely from his physical presence. Now I'm going to ask for a tip. I want to see if you're really going to back the Wallabies on this one. I am going to go with the Wallabies by two. I'm backing a Reese Hodge conversion or penalty mm. after the siren to win it. Well, I, I've i gone with two players on my reserves bench for that same reason. I've gone with Lock- uh, Ryan Lonigan and Reese Hodge for their ability to kick a ball from near halfway even more so over halfway on the high veld. So I'm going to say Wallabies by three with either of those players stepping up to smack it from 55 out. How good. Heard it here first. Wallabies breaking a long hoodoo in Pretoria, potentially ever. I don't know if that's the case, but it certainly is looking like another famous win for our Wallabies heading into this weekend. So mate, yeah, we've never won in oh Pretoria. My goodness. Oh, well, Loftus, yeah. well, you know, we've always needed a win at Loftus. We'll just roll in this weekend. How easy. Done, mate. Now, very excited for that test. Now, let's um, let's talk a little bit more around the Wallabies and their sort of aforementioned train-on squad or Australia A. Now, for those that are uh, on YouTube, we do have the list up in front of us. For those playing uh, along at home on the podcast, I'll quickly run through the names and maybe then we'll have a chat around some of the people that are included and how, how much game time we think these guys will get. So in the forwards, we've got Charlie Kale, Josh Cannum, Pone Falmasili, Falafain Gaa, Charlie Gamble, Ned Hannigan, Tom Lambert, Lockie Lonigan, Caden Neville, Lucan Salakai Loto, Blake Shop, Darcy Swain, Lockie Swinton, uh, Sam Talakai, Brad Wilkin, and Harry Wilson. In the backs, we've got Lockie Anderson, Jock Campbell, Filippo Dalgunu, Isaac Fines, Lilia Wasa, Josh Fluke, Bernard Foley, Jake Gordon, James O'Connor, Hunter Paisami, James Tuttle, Joey Walton, and interestingly, named at utility is Seru Uru. Well, Seru is always... Let's start with that last one, utility. Yeah, Seru's always struck me as a bit of a halfback. What's that? Yeah, Seru a bit of a Uru. halfback mold. You know, he's short, compact, you know, really strong passing game from what we've seen off the deck. Um, <laughs> well, I was thinking more fullback, you know, dropping field goals from 60 out. Bit of a Fran Stain mold. I think the, the Sarah Uru one's interesting. Um, um, the utility continues to you know, tickle me that Eddie's you know, pulling out flankers and saying you're on the wing and vice versa. I wonder if Sarah has got a bit of toe about him. I, we haven't been able to see him in open space a lot. He's been playing eight and six and hasn't been able to roam free much. I'm sure the Queensland boys would be able to give us a bit more of an indication, but He's definitely got a bit of Radiki summer. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of Radiki about him, and who can forget the big man having a good charge in that Suncorp test? He lined up in the centres a bit, didn't he? Oh, he loved it. He loved it. But um, it's a really interesting trade on squad, and what we're likely to see is this form the basis of the Australia A side that's scheduled to play Tonga, 
And a news report from Sydney Morning Herald um, during the middle of this week actually suggests that Australia A might get a second test this year if it all comes to fruition against Portugal. And they'll use that game as a curtain raiser ahead of the Australia v France one-off World Cup warm-up test at Stade de France. So I imagine if that comes up, this will be you know heavily featured in that side and potentially in Eddie's Barbarian squad. We'll see how that comes about. And I'm sure we'll touch on it in a tick, but lots of really interesting things. Refresh my, refresh my mind for a moment. Portugal are in our they World are Cup, indeed. right? They are indeed. And they've got some pretty sharp kit about them too. Well, so we'll be keen to see yeah. uh, if that comes to, they do. That they comes, really do. Um, comes to reality. It would be really cool. It'd be interesting if that does happen, how many of the wider Wallaby squad, so the sort of the non-playing 23 make up that team? Because you would imagine that that's one of the, the games in the World Cup pools that you'd rest your Michael Hoopers and your, um, your Quaid yeah, Troopers and, and you'd have to think with the greatest respect to you know, Os Lobos, you want to be banking a bonus point win against Portugal. And I'm sure that'll come back to bite me now that I've said it out loud. But a great opportunity to test some of these players. You heard it here first. Wallaby's first loss <laughs> please, to Portugal ever. Please, please, ever no, test. please, no, that didn't come from me. Um, but a great opportunity, I think, for these Aussie <laughs> um, players to put their hand up and, you know, that could decide whether you make a World Cup squad. You know, you have a blinder in an Aussie game weeks out from the World Cup, someone goes down. I mean, you're only, you're in the same spot. Maybe you're across the pond in England with the Barbars. It's a huge opportunity. So if it does come... Uh, to pass that that happens. Great case for the people who are on the fringes of a 23, you know, people like a, a Hunter Paisami, uh, a Jake Gordon, potentially someone like a Sam Talakai or a Ned Hannigan who are really pushing to be in that frame and in that World Cup swap, but you wouldn't say as locked in. Huge opportunity. But the first one is coming up against Tonga and a couple of names that I wanted to put in front of you, Mitch, just to see what you made of them in this train-on squad. You know, some for their surprise value that they're not in the main one, but some to be there at all that I want to flag. And the first two names, uh, you know, similar positions in the back row, but couldn't be further from the discourse. Harry Wilson and Charlie Kale. What do you make of two players like that from different paths being in the train-on squad? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And... I think a broader theme of this train on squad is that uh, in almost a, a barometer of how close are you to making or cracking a Wallabies extended playing group um, and how much are you here as a development player who's going to get a lot of, you know, maybe not even make, make a 23 for Australia A, but just be there to, to develop. And I think that's what we're looking at here. Harry Wilson is a player who one or two injuries in this Wallaby squad, and I think he's right in there. He, he still could make the 34-man squad for the World Cup later this year. He's not been playing badly at all. He's got a few things he needs to work on. Uh, but I think in some ways, Eddie Jones has put another message to him by not selecting him, in a sense, uh, similar to what we kind of have seen in the past with uh, Noel Alessio and, and what Dave Rennie did, not including him on the the spring tour last year. So I definitely would imagine Harry Wilson gets a lot of game times and a lot of minutes in this Australia A squad. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised if he's one of the players that then gets brought into the Wallabies rugby champ squad when we play Argentina in a week, when we factor in the travel time and the distance that 
the first 15 are going to be taking. Yeah, huge call. And it's really interesting looking through that train-on squad. And you mentioned, you know, someone with Wallaby experience like Harry and a few of the others that you quickly touched on. But more than half have Wallaby caps. You've got 17 capped Wallabies in that unit. It's a massive amount of experience. And the the two that I keep being drawn to are Bernard Foley and James O'Connor. You've got two, you know, vastly experienced, you know, more than 50 tests each, you know, quite clearly. You know, what role do they play, do you think, in a side that has a lot of fringe Wallabies but also some very new look first five and half-back options in the mix as well? People like... Isaac Fiennes-Leawasa and James Tuttle almost wouldn't have pinged on anyone's radar heading into a World Cup squad. Yeah, uh, Bernard Foley is the interesting one for Mellon. Uh, the fact that he's been brought back from Japan and is, you'd imagine, one of those like extra squad picks, no longer the ghetto law or the ghetto rule or the Mitchell Amendment, whatever you want to call it. I don't know how he gets included in this squad considering he's not Australian-based and he doesn't have any connection to an Australian Super Rugby franchise. Uh, we don't know what Eddie's been given other than that he went to the board of RA with the, what was it, five or six that made the 34-man squad and said, I want these players. And they said, yep, fine, done. Whether Foley is included in that or not, uh, I imagine that a player more like James O'Connor is that development player who's there to mentor the players around him, similar to what he's been doing at the Reds this year with uh, Tom Liner. Uh but Foley doesn't have any of those connections with any of the super rugby clubs, doesn't know any of these younger guys. He's probably a flip of a coin of being included in that Wallaby squad with Carter Gordon, whether you go for youth or you go for experience there. But in an Australia A squad, I feel like he's a little bit wasted and it's probably not the setup that you want a player of his, I guess, contractual arrangements to be included in. You'd rather have someone like uh, Hamish Stewart, say, for example, be included in Or players like a Noah Lolisea or a Max Bury, even, you know, young playmakers who are still trying to find this. No, what, what was that name? No, Noah? No, Noah who? It's, I, I know we mentioned it last week. Who's that? It's still, it's still gobsmacking to not see powers like that in the mix. But, you know, yeah. especially through the Ford pack, looking back at the piggies again, some real World Cup contenders in that mix. And I look at names like Caden Neville, who was a mainstay of the Brumbies throughout the year. I look at a Lucan Salakai-Loto. You know, is he that hybrid lock six that everyone's been talking about? He had some great reels in Northampton. I'm super excited to see what can come of him. And then in, you know, putting on your Tars hat, you must be excited to see someone like Charlie Gamble back in the mix in an Aussie A squad. Yeah, it's really exciting. Look, he's he's had a good last few seasons. I probably didn't think he had as good a 2023 season as he did a 2022. And whether that's Hooper coming back and playing bigger minutes or himself getting injured mid-season and not having the impact that he did, the fact that he has stuck with Australian rugby and that he has been included in this squad is exciting. And he's definitely a project player for the future. I'd imagine he makes that 34-man rugby champ squad in 2024. So... Uh, yeah, excited to see him included here. Would be awesome to see him get those minutes. Uh, whether you have a player like, like realistically, he's coming up in selection contention for Australia A with Brad Wilkin. At the moment, I'd probably prefer to see a player like Wilkin get selected over Gamble at the moment. Uh, but both of those guys, I think, have massive futures and are going to be our six, seven combos 
for the next, uh, with McWright for the next three, four, five, six, seven, eight, however many years moving forward. I agree. Look, it's a hugely important game in Tonga. It's probably going to fly under the radar with the TRC and PAC 4 and other things going on, but this is really going to make or break some World Cup hopes. So really exciting to see. Well, uh, Tonga's not an easy yeah. team to play either. When you look at the players that they've included in that squad, Israel Folau's included, uh, Adam Coleman's included. Uh, who else was there? Uh, was it Malachi yeah, Fekatoa? But you've got well. Charles like Piertau, guys... who's one of the outstanding Northern yep. Hemisphere fullbacks. Lepetti Tamani's in the mix, a former Wallaby. I mean, God, they've got class all over the place. So it's a huge challenge. And I think um, we probably saw an underperforming Tonga when we last played the Pacific Nations Cup last season. Uh, Australia A did that leg before their three-game tour of Japan. And this is going to be some hell of a challenge over in Nukalofa playing in Tonga against a fired-up team under Tadakefu. I mean, it's super exciting. It is really exciting to see what happens. And I do hope that they bring back that Pacific Nations series next year after the World Cup uh, because not only the development that we get as a development pathway for our players, but having the likes of Samoa, Fiji, Tonga playing in that competition only strengthens themselves uh, and makes them, when it gets to World Cup time, makes them, I mean, Fiji is a, a real contender to beat us or even Wales and get out of the pool. Yeah, for sure. And then you've got Georgia floating around in our pool, which is terrifying. Their 20s just dusted the RGs, as you saw in the graphic above that the North were so happy to put out but not consider Georgia for Six Nations stuff. So unpack that one at your own time. Yeah. But you know, some of those games that I really used to love watching were Pacific Nations Cup games that included Australia A and New Zealand Maori as well. And what a what an awesome opportunity that would be to bring back a Pacific Nations Cup potentially with a, a Japan 15 and make it six teams with the islands plus Australia A and New Zealand Maori kind of feeds into what you're talking about with the under-20s. There's so much opportunity to tap into this Pacific movement of rugby with Japan's rise, with the US and Canada creeping up. We need to start matching these uh, European Northern Hemisphere efforts and that would be another great way to have a, a second-tier pathway that enables us to be match-ready to roll into these big events. Question for you on this squad before we finish things up. How much of this, when you look at the names that are included, how much of this do you think is the here and now of the players that are close to World Cup squad selection and need game time? And how much do you think is Eddie looking forward for potentially the Lions in 2025? I think you could just about split it down the middle with players who are either making or breaking their World Cup hopes and players who are clearly development. I think I look at a player like uh, Fines Liliawasa or uh, Josh Cannum or a Josh Fluke. Those are three that really stand out as being, you know, we're seeing some good, good things. Be in this mix, be in this environment, and, you know, come 2024, 2025, I want you to be dominating Super Rugby and putting your name forward for a gold jersey come the Lions Tour. And, and he's right at the top of the forwards list as well, but Charlie Kale, you know, Bolt from the blue that we mentioned earlier, you know, if he starts putting in big shifts in Australia A jersey, potentially he does have a rise, like someone like a, a Ben Donaldson and a Mark Nwanganita Wasi had off the last tour. You know, that's why we have these places, I mean, these squads in place so they can get these opportunities and fast track these players through. 
And then another one that I just stood out to me then, I can't believe I didn't mention him before, but Sam Talakai for me was one of the form tight heads of Super Rugby. And he's sort of bubbling away under the radar with all the Alan Alatoa and Tupo, you know, who's injured, who's coming back. Sam Talakai didn't by no means disgrace himself in a Wallaby debut over in Europe. And he was a really strong player in the Rebels. So that's another person who's going, hey, don't forget about me. He's banging on that door, isn't he? Now, two names that jump out to me, and I'd be interested to see, get your thoughts on their future. Darcy Swain and Lockie Swinton. I love that they've put them both together. <laughs> how, how many minutes do they get? Realistically, do you have faith that you could pick either of those blokes in a 15 or a 23 and not expect a red card from them within 15 minutes? Oh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the sort of discipline side of it because um, earlier in our recording, sort of taking pick and drive international, we were talking about um, Thomas Lavanini as a shining beacon of red cards and ill discipline down the track. I don't think they're on that level um, <laughs> by any means, but it's really tough. It's tough to consider them just based on history. And I think what you need to see over this Australia A Tour is really strong, aggressive form from two players who are good players. They've demonstrated that they can be really strong at super rugby level. I don't think you can say either of them have really stamped themselves as a wallaby yet. We've obviously seen some great moments of Lockie Swinton, you know, in his limited Bledisloe minutes, putting on big hits. Darcy Swain's, you know, line-out um, mall defence and steal against the French won us a series. So they've both had their moments, but they they fall right into the make or break for me um, with regards to World Cup selection. You know, you're on the fringe. Can you be a hard enforcer? This is the time to show us. Show us in Tonga. Show us, you know, potentially in a Barbar's jersey. You know, let's see what you can offer. Otherwise, you know, World Cup's looking like a pretty far stretch. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned there uh, the bar bars, and so that's a talking point that I wanted to finish up on for the pod tonight. Uh, Eddie Jones has done what Eddie Jones does best. He's got his little black book out of connections, and he's dialed off and made some, some calls. And what he's managed to do is talk the barbarians into allowing Laurie Fisher, Nathan Gray, and Beric Barnes Three guys who, if not currently in the coaching setup of the Wallabies, have been within the last two or three seasons. Um, or Australian rugby, I should say, with Nathan Gray in the under-20s. Now, all three of these guys are going over and will be coaching the Barbarians under a number of tests. Uh, this first one we know is Bristol. There is other teams that are talked about and haven't been officially sort of locked in and, and dates yet. But this is firming as... Australia A, with maybe a handful of blokes from the English Premiership who are available, playing under the Barbarians brand during the World Cup so that Eddie has a quick and fast solution should a player get injured. It's it's a funny one and it's very, um, it's very on brand. I think so much of what we see from Eddie is, you know, making sure that Rugby Australia and Australian rugby is in the media, is being considered. But realistically, this gives uh, the Wallabies a huge opportunity to have players ready to roll and ready to feed in and ready to slot into a system that they've already got coaches involved with. So, I mean, the thought of 
you mentioned people on staff. I mean, Beric's on staff. Beric's a kicking consultant. He's up on all the socials, on all the tiles as a player of note yep. who's been involved with this. So, I mean, it is exciting to see um, that this is being considered. And you've got, I mean, you've got Jason Gilmore involved as well, you know, really high-level coach um, coming across through from the TARS and through Kiwi systems as well, to my understanding. And then Lord Laurie, I mean, it's a... It's a stacked coaching lineup. I mean, someone like Nathan Gray, who's already running the under twenty programs as well. What a what a fantastic asset to have on the ground with you too. So I think we can expect a fair amount of Wallaby flavour in a Barbars team. Uh, and anyone who's thinking they're getting an easy ride uh, on a Barbars trip under Lord Laurie is probably kidding themselves. But you know, games against Bristol, I think. Um, <laughs> as we were scrapping around before putting this together, I think Scarlet's and potentially Northampton Saints are also on the menu for the bar bars too. So they're just across the pond. Come a World Cup time, if you've got a few ready wallabies waiting in the wings, why not? Why not have them match fit and ready to go? It's a bit cheaper to go from England over to France and it much, is Australia. Much, much. So. And I, I wager there'll be... Um, I wonder how many of the Kiwis want to slide into that bar bars team as well. Maybe there's a few potential All Blacks waiting in the wings in black and white too. Or an, another player that potentially might get selection, Kerbalo. Who knows what happens there with Eddie? That's an interesting one because so much commentary out of the um, La Rochelle v Toulouse top 14 final was when Kerbalo went off, the tide started turning. You know, he came off, you know, midway through the 60-minute mark, I think. And um, and from there, you know, Toulouse were able to run him down. And obviously so much of that's down to, you know, Intermac, you know, seeing a spot and shooting through where 13 probably should have been. But, I mean, Kerbalo is clearly a premier halfback. And if we see him in a Barbaros jersey, are we going to be that shocked that we're getting some intel from the top club team in the world? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think we'll leave things there. That's, um, that'll do us for tonight. We have probably run oh, yeah. well and truly over time. Uh, Lockie, thanks for joining me this evening. It's been great to talk Wallabies, Springboks, predicted 15s, Wallaroos under junior wallabies under 20s in their championships as well so make sure you are uh following our socials we will put those teams up on social media if you've got any thoughts want to let us know how wrong we were please do um let us know go easy on us um as you as we said before those are the teams that we predict eddie to to pick not necessarily who we think we would pick if we were in his shoes but uh yeah lucky thanks again for getting to this part of the pod thanks everyone for listening We'll be back next week and we'll have a Wallabies first test match under Eddie Jones, first test match of 2023, and hopefully the first test match the Wallabies have won in Pretoria. Let's go Wallabies. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Go Wallabies!